Now let's begin with some comments about the major methods of interpreting the book of Revelation, which is there at the top of your handout. And I've structured them schematically as futurist, preterist, and interadventualist. <clears throat> All right, now, with respect to the futurist interpretation, the key, this is a key method of interpretation for premillennial uh, interpreters, exegetes. <clears throat> so what did that word premillennial mean? Before the millennium. And what's the millennium? Thousand years. All right. Now, what kind of thousand year is this? Good. There is a thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. Literally, he sits on a throne in Jerusalem according to the premillennial view. And premillennialism is uh, present in two varieties. There are historic premillennialists who do not believe that the church will be taken out of the tribulation. And there are dispensational premillennialists who believe that the church will be raptured out of the tribulation, which will occur to the Jewish people when Jesus returns. So you have pre-tribulation and post-tribulation premillennialists. The pre-tribulation premillennialist is also known as a dispensationalist. That is the strongest variety of premillennialism because it is part of the notes in the Schofield Bible. And the Schofield Bible is one of the most popular Bibles still in uh, American uh, uh, bookstores and online ordering services. All right, now, this view, which is called futurist, believes that everything or most everything from chapter 4 of Revelation on is purely future and has to do with the establishment of a renewed Jewish theocracy during the millennium of Christ's reign on the earth. So this is a futurist approach to the book of Revelation. When you get to chapter 4, everything is off in the distant future, or even the near future if you have the left-behind theology of Tim LaHaye and other advocates of the dispensational rapture theory. Any questions about that? That's one that's probably the dominant conservative or evangelical view of interpreting Revelation. It's standard in most Bible churches, a lot of independent churches, a lot of denominations who favor this view. Uh, very popular. Uh, Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth, that's part of it. Uh, a lot of uh, seminaries committed to it, like Dallas Theological Seminary in Dallas, Texas. Randy? The, the notes to the Schofield Bible are sometime in the early 1900s. I don't have the date exactly in my head. <clears throat> but that was a King James Bible released with the notes, and the notes were popularizing in a Bible that people could pick up and read. They were popularizing dispensational theology, which had been, which was invented in the 19th century. Around 1860s and following, it comes out of the Darbyite movement in England, Plymouth Brethren movement in England, and it comes across to America through the prophetic conferences, which were extremely popular in the late 19th century in, in American churches. Schofield was a man who did this. Yes, yes. He, he, was, he was a, a student of the Bible, student of Bible prophecy, 
and he wrote an annotated Bible. All right, now the next view is the preterist view. And preterist simply means past. And as you can note, most of the book of Revelation on this view is already fulfilled by 70 A.D. Now, why would they pick 70 A.D.? That's the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And so they put the book of Revelation together with the Olivet Discourse of Jesus in Mark 13 and Matthew 25, and they interpret them <coughs> synonymously. They interpret them in terms of one reflecting on the other. And since Jesus is talking in the Olivet Discourse in part about the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD, so this preterist view holds that much of the book of Revelation is already fulfilled. Not all of it, but much of it. This is the view held by post-millennialists. Now, what would post-millennialism be? The millennium? Not, not, not quite. What's post mean? After. Okay, so after the millennium or after the thousand years, but they don't believe it's a literal thousand-year period. What the post-millennialist believes is that there's going to come a time in world history when the gospel is going to conquer most of the unbelieving world. And that era will, uh, will, will flourish for a while under the uh, power of the Holy Spirit. It's called the latter-day glory approach uh, to interpreting the, the New Testament in particular. One would think so, but nonetheless, uh, post-millennialism is alive and well in the Reformed world in the 21st century, and it takes this approach that there will come a time when the Holy Spirit will be poured out with such unction of power that most of the world will be converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then he will return. And consequently, that means that what is in Revelation must be reflected for the most part to past history. So the preterist opinion does not look to much future uh, uh, material, future-oriented material in the book of Revelation. It is preterist, it is past-oriented. Now that post-millennialism is especially strong in theonomic circles. If you're familiar with theonomy, that's a movement within Reformed faith, and those uh, theonomists are very committed and strong uh, post-millennialists. Any question there? No, it has to do with applying the judicial system of the Old Testament to the New Testament world, particularly the Jewish system of punishments and and penalties, execution of homosexuals, stoning of children for cursing their parents, that kind of thing. All right, now, the third one is inter-adventualist, which is a word I've invented to... uh, Describe uh, what's going on under this uh, method of interpretation. Namely, that we're dealing in the book of Revelation with a document which has symbols, symbolic tapestries, that's symbolic pictures, symbols of the now, not yet, 
life of the people of God between the first and second advent. Inter-adventualist. Between the first advent of the Son of God's incarnation and the second advent of the Son of God's consummate appearance for final judgment, in between first and second advent, which is the time of the church's life in the world, there is this now, not yet, present and future ongoing uh, aspect of the experience of Christians in the world. Now, we'll continue to fill that out. This is basically the amillennial point of view. What does amillennial mean? No literal thousand-year millennium. The interadventual period, that is the period between the incarnation of Christ and his second coming, is a millennium, quote-unquote. Millennium, you know, a thousand years in the book of Revelation, is a symbolic number. It is not a literal number. <clears throat> All right, so there's a futuristic way of interpreting the book of Revelation. There's a preteristic view of interpreting the book of Revelation. And there's an interadventualist way of per- interpreting the book of Revelation. The premillennial way post-millennial way, amillennial way. Now, I'm in the amillennial camp. I'm in the inter-adventualist camp. This is the camp of William Hendrickson, whom I mentioned last week, and his commentary, More Than Conquerors. Particularly, Hendrickson's commentary in the book of Revelation has had an Archimedean force on interpreting the book of Revelation. It's changed the discussion. And even though it was published many, many years ago, it's almost 100 years ago now when the first edition came out, but it's been republished over and over again, and it is still in print, as I indicated last time. So basically, I'm standing on this former Christian, this, this former Christian reform minister and, and uh, uh, teacher at Calvin, at Calvin College. I don't know whether he taught at seminary or not, but at any rate, I'm standing on his shoulders as are most all other Reformed interpreters of the book of Revelation who are not premillennial, and there are some Reformed people who are premillennial, historic premill, who are not postmillennial, and obviously there are some Reformed people who are postmillennialist, but the majority of Reformed people are amillennialist and have followed uh, Hendrickson's uh, groundbreaking study in which he looks at the book of Revelation from the standpoint of unfolding symbolic patterns which recapitulate or repeat themselves as the book itself unfolds. So we'll, we'll make comments about, the, about that as we do the detail of the, of the book as we proceed. But anyway, that, that gives you a conceptual framework for how one comes at the book. The Bible preacher on the radio, J. Vernon McGee and so on, those people, they're premillennialists. That's how they're coming at the book. Postmillennialist people like Lorraine Bettner and Norman Shepard and others, they are coming at the book, Greg Bonson, they're coming at the book from a postmillennial standpoint. The amillennialist is coming at the book from the standpoint of Gerhardus Voss for the eschatological foundation, but for Hendrickson building on Voss, with a detailed exploration and commentary on the book of Revelation. All right, now, um, you're free to take a different approach, of course. You're always at liberty to disagree. Uh, There are many 
uh, stellar scholars in all of these camps. Now, the issue is not whether they're scholarly. The issue is whether they're uh, interpreting the book as it wants to be interpreted. And how do we know how the book wants to be interpreted? From comparing scripture with scripture, from comparing what's within the book with other things that are in the book and also other things that are outside the book and inspired word of God. Okay. Now, that gives us the first three verses. And let's have uh, our eyes on the text as I read it out, and then we'll begin to break it down. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, these three verses have been variously described as a prologue, as a superscription, as a preface. I prefer the more bland word introduction because I think it more adequately understand, uh, comprehends what's going on in these three verses. It is not technically a superscript, even though it has the book, the name of the book in it, but it is an overall introduction to the book in terms of its title, author, communicator, etc. All right, that brings us to the title, which is Apocalypsis, in the Greek, and I transliterated that for you on your handout, it is the Greek word from which we get the word, English word apocalypse, an apocalyptic having to do with future eschatological actions. Universally translated by the New American Standard Version, wherever it appears in the New Testament, that is apocalypse and apocalypsis as revelation. So that's the reason the revelation of Jesus Christ is in your English translation. So this word <coughs> apocalyptic refers to revelation, God communicating something about his arena, something about himself, something about what uh, exists in his world, what's going to exist in the human world or the world of the creation. <coughs> this is a revelation from God himself as all revelation in Scripture is a self-disclosure of God's person and his work and his plans and decrees. Now, sometimes apocalyptic is described as that which is characteristic of the book of Daniel, some parts of the book of Ezekiel, and other intertestamental apocalyptic works. Dismissing the intertestamental apocalyptic works, which are absolutely bizarre, there are elements in the book of Daniel and the book of Ezekiel which are apocalyptic in the sense that they do resemble what the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, also conveys and, put, and contains. And that's the use of <clears throat> symbols or portraits of animals and angelic beings and great cataclysms, etc., uh, somewhat uh, strangely articulated, uh, 
In other words, they surprise us sometimes. Uh, Many-eyed beings, uh, beings flying with wings in different directions. Those types of things that you find in Ezekiel and Daniel are apocalyptic notes. And so we find some of that here in the book of Revelation. And so the label apocalyptic has been attached to it. Now, in our popular uh, conversation, a popular genre, uh, 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 language, we use apocalyptic to mean some cataclysmic or catastrophic event in the future. And that's a correct application of the word because obviously the future of God's kingdom is being described here in the apocalypse of the Apostle John. So we, we have this flavor of apocalyptic being revelation like any other revelation, but revelation with a little difference, with a, with a little uh, extra jazz to it, uh, particularly in terms of symbolism and, uh, and, and description of uh, strange persons, strange beings, and strange events. All right, now, with respect to this introduction, who is the author of this apocalypse? And which person? How many persons are there? Which person? Is God the Father, correct. How do you know it's God the Father? So there's another person there, right? If one person is the giver, then the other person's the receiver. So that, and there's a there's there's a human person there, okay? So God God here in the text is obviously God the Father because Jesus Christ is God the Son, second person. All right, so God the Father is the author of the revelation. Who is the communicator of the revelation? An angel. Do we know the name of this angel? He's not named here. Is he named anywhere in the book of Revelation? No, he's not. He's an anonymous, unnamed angel. Is he equal with God? No, he's a what? He's a servant of God. What distinguishes him from God? What's the basic category of distinction? He's a creature, correct. He's a creature. He is not the creator. So there's a distinction. The creator-creature distinction exists here. He is a messenger of God, which is what the word angelus means in other contexts. So here... He is a messenger communicating this revelation of God the Father and God the Son to who's the recorder? The Apostle John is the recorder of this revelation. He's writing it down as it's communicated to him. The subject, as we've already pointed out, is the second person of the triune Godhead, God the Son, who is identified as Jesus Christ here. Now, what is significant about the use of those names? Jesus means what? 
Savior. Very good. Christ means what? Okay. Any other word? Messiah. Messiah. Very good. So we have the Son of God identified here in this apocalypse by his salvific name, Jesus, who saves his people from their sins, Matthew 1.21, and but his messianic title, the Christ, or the anointed of the Lord to perform the, the, the function of bringing in the kingdom of heaven. Bringing in the kingdom of God, which is precisely what Jesus preaches as he preaches through his earthly ministry. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. That's the message of Christ himself while he was uh, <clears throat> ministering on the earth. Yes? When you say subject, do you mean the subject of the sentence or... No, he's the subject of the apocalypse. He's the subject of the revelation. It's about him. And that which is attached to him or identified with him. Yes, this is a possessive genitive in the Greek text. And what it means is he's the possessor of this revelation, belongs to him, and it belongs to him, in my opinion, as the subject, the primary subject of the revelation. So it belongs to him in the sense that it is his, okay? It's his possession. It belongs to him in terms of it's him being the object of the subject, it's not a it's it's not a grammatical term, like the subject of a sentence per se. You're a little puzzled, Ben. Yeah, yeah, I'm a little puzzled. I get I get into knots about this grammar there, <laughs> because God gave him Jesus, correct? And God and, and God said, and then it is said that God gave him to him is Jesus Christ. Yes. So He gave Jesus Christ. The revelation of himself. Right. In terms of the things that are shortly to come to pass. So. No, it's it's a, it's a indication of the intertrinitarian sharing. Even as the father gives the son his working orders, so to speak, and the son undertakes those on behalf of the father. That that's a relationship between the two of them in which the one does the will of the other. So it's the same kind of idea here because this this genitive is capable of you know, content and subject. Does that help? Okay. Jesus don't know everything that the Father knows. That's consistent through the New Testament. Not with respect to his... In incarnational state. That is correct. But we'll leave that one aside for a moment. <laughs> All right. The next category in this introduction is what I've labeled commendation. Commendation. What word am I picking out as a commendation? Churches. 
As you go through those three verses, what word would be a commendation? Blessed. Blessed. Very good. The word blessed. Now, this is the same word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount in Greek. Blessed are the poor in spirit, etc. Here, the commendation is to the present blessing of the spiritual possession of heaven's grace and life. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand. Kingdom of heaven is amongst you. Kingdom of heaven has come upon you. This is, once again, the kind of blessedness that Jesus brings when he brings the kingdom into history. But there is also, in this term, blessed, particularly in terms of how this word is used through the book of Revelation. It's used a number of times in the succeeding chapters, as you will see. Blessed here is both the present spiritual possession of heaven's grace and light and the future life and the future assurance of the eternal fruition of that present grace and life possession. It's both a now and not yet blessedness. Blessed are you now and blessed will you be completely and perfectly not yet in the future. And the final link in the chain here of this introductory vocabulary is the, is the, is the designation, what I've called the designation. And what is this material designated? Verse 3. No, nope, stronger than that. Prophecy. It's prophetic apocalyptic. Well, it's apocalyptic prophetic. All right, so prophecy here is also going to take on the flavor of the maturation or the accomplishment of Old Testament prophecy and even use the same kind of techniques or the same kind of dual aspect which is present in Old Testament prophecy. For instance, if we take the Old Testament prophetic word phrase, the day of the Lord, which occurs in most all of the Old Testament prophetic books, and those of you that have been with me from the series of Jeremiah and Daniel, Zephaniah and Obadiah, Obadiah and Zephaniah, I'll put them in canonical order, <coughs> You understand that we've talked about this phrase in those <coughs> prophetic works, the day of the Lord, which in the Old Testament prophetic consciousness is both a present uh, uh, <coughs> event, a present reality, a national reality. The day of the Lord in 586 B.C. was a national destruction of the city of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, and it's also a future destruction. It's a future judgment. It's a cosmic judgment. So it is a present Old Testament Jewish national event, and it is projected as a future universal cosmic or worldwide cosmic event. The day of the Lord is at hand. It's near, and it is also not yet. It is far off. All right, so this aspect of Old Testament prophecy is going to be shot through the book of Revelation. 
You're going to find this language, which is going to have a now, not yet, or a present and future dimension to it. This is true of Jesus' language about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is, has come and is coming. It is present now, and it will come in its fullness in the future. All right, so this designation of the book as prophecy is standing on the shoulders of Old Testament prophetic imagery, genre, and and vocabulary, and also standing on the shoulders of Christ himself, once again, the Olivet Discourse, Mark 13, Matthew 25, and what Jesus means in that language about a now or present aspect of these eschatological events and a future aspect of these, or final aspect of these uh, eschatological events. So Jesus's pattern as the Apostle John's pattern here is going to be semi-eschatological, both now and not yet, both present and future. Any questions about that introduction and that chain that connects the various elements from the Father to the Son, to the angel, to the Apostle John, and to the bond servants of the Lord. Yes, Kay? In the very first part, it says, uh, which God gave him. Is that him, John? No, it is capitalized in New American Standard because it is Christ himself. That's, that's what Ben's question was about. Yes, that's good. You're, you're using your grammar to find the closest antecedent. So God gave it to Jesus? Yes. The Father, God the Father, gives this revelation to the Son. Okay? It is about the Son and it is for the Son. Both. So there's, there's a, there's, shall we say, there's an embarrassment of riches here. Okay? Not only is only about him, but it is for him. Because it is for his unfolding a plan for his people, the people of the Lord Jesus Christ, his bond servants. We're going to look at that term bond servants in a moment. But this is before God told him about it. Right? I, I, I don't think we go that far. Okay. This is the disclosure of it. Understand there are no secrets from the persons of the Godhead. There is sequence of making it clear, the sequence of revealing, sequence of disclosing it or making it manifest. It took 2,000, it took 2000 years for Abraham's promise to become manifest. It wasn't hidden from the Son or the Father at, at any time during those 2,000 years. They knew exactly when it was going to come to pass. Confesses that there's things he doesn't know. Yes. <clears throat> With respect to his human nature, that is true. In his incarnate form, he humbles himself to lay aside some of his, <clears throat> some of his divine prerogative. But with respect to his divine nature, he's still omniscient and omnipresent. That's tough to, 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 to stick together, I admit. I admit it. There's mystery there, I admit that. But when you're talking about the intertwining relationships of the Trinity, you're talking about mystery. Things that in many cases are perhaps beyond our 
human capacity to even understand. Our brains aren't big enough to get it. It takes an infinite brain to get it. God gave the revelation of Jesus Christ, gave it to him to be communicated to the church, which was going to take place in the church of John. Yes. Okay. That, that's what I was hoping to say, and, and uh, your statement is far clearer than my own, Ben. Thank you. Yes, Mark. Uh, you know, the wording of the English translation that I have here, you know, it says, which God gave him. It didn't say God informed him. It says God gave him, not what the Greek says. But gave implies that Jesus is not learning this for the first time. Yeah, the Greek, the Greek is, is, is just exactly the way the English translation it reads. So <clears throat> that's a very literal rendering of the original Greek text. The word give does not mean informed for the first time, informed a person of something they don't have. Good. All right, well, <clears throat> uh, we want to go on and talk about the potential frame in the book of Revelation, but let's uh, take our break. And uh, we'll return after your break to discuss that. Now, we've reached the part of the handout that has a question mark beside the word frame there. And you'll notice that the uh, quotations that are included there come from the beginning and the end of the book of Revelation. And it's interesting to note that the exact phrasing is used. The Greek here is, is virtually duplicated so that these phrases to show his bondservants the thing which must shortly come to pass sent by his angel and then sent his angel to show his bondservants the thing which must shortly come to pass in 22.6 raise the question about whether there's an intentional bracket around the book. Now, you might say, well, verse 6 of chapter 22 is short of the ending of the book, and that is accurate. <clears throat> but it's significant to note that at the beginning of the book and the end of the book, we have these duplicate expressions. Now, as you look at those two lines, do you notice anything else which is interesting about their occurrence? Chiasm here. Yes, very good, Randy. Yes, there's a chiasm here. <clears throat> what ends the first line begins the second line. And here we have a chiastic mirror at the beginning and ending of the book. <clears throat> as he begins, <clears throat> so he ends, but he ends in reverse fashion as if to reflect back upon the unity of the book, as if to reflect back upon the unity of the message of the book, as if to mirror in the beginning and ending expressions that these things will come to pass as the angel has ind indicated in communicating the revelation to John. These things will come to pass certainly, surely, assuredly, etc. There's a lock on it. What is enclosed between the uh, frame, I won't call it an inclusio, what's enclosed between the frame and the, or the bracket is a mirror, chiastic reversal or reflection of the unity of the contents and the the, uh, uh, the unfolding pattern of the book itself. Now, I put the question mark before before the word frame because this is this is an observation. It's somewhat of a speculation. It's a suggestion. I'm not quite so speculative as too pejorative. 
It's suggestive. Others have noted it, not, my, not just myself. But I'm raising the question about the chiastic style, which others have not noted. At least I'm not aware of any others noting that the chiastic element is here. If so, it would strengthen the case for being a frame device which holds the whole book together. Now, there's another series of phrases that also raises that question of whether there's a frame or a bracket around the whole book. And that's that word in verse, that section of words in verse three, which is next on your handout. Words of the prophecy, the time is near. Words of the prophecy, time is near in 22.10 as in 1.3. In this case, <clears throat> there is no chiastic reversal. <clears throat> There's straightforward parallelism. All right. Underscoring with this comment, even if, even if suggestive, that the book is a unity. It's not a hodgepodge of various elements and, <clears throat> and disparate uh, viewpoints or ideas. That, again, is a liberal view of the book of Revelation, and I don't think that this, <clears throat> I, I think this frame makes you pause when you, when you think about others adding in their own ideas or this being put together by a series of authors, none of whom is, of course, the Apostle John himself because the liberals don't believe that the Apostle John wrote the book. Go ahead, Randy. So the term come to pass and time are both used twice, and I assume that means history, right? Yes. It means it happens in history. Yes. So the symbolic idea of it all happening in heaven, how does that fit into history? The heavenly orientation is a manifestation of what is going to be, what is going to occur in history as well. <clears throat> Even as Christ's presence in heaven doesn't deny his presence <clears throat> on earth by the power of the Holy Spirit with his people. So this is a both and, this is a both now and not yet paradigm. Working, <clears throat> working in the arena of heaven itself and in the arena of history itself now. That, that that's okay. That's right. Okay, right. I got you. Right. There, there are aspects which are, are are future present in that dimension of heaven, but are not yet revealed in this dimension of the earth and and uh, earthly or human history. That's very helpful. Why do they say hodgepodge? Hodgepodge to me means what our our garage looks like. <laughs> <laughs> Well, blessings on your garage. Thank you. <laughs> I know the feeling. Uh, my garage is probably not that quite quite that bad. The liberal always believes that the Bible is a is a put together book. In other words, it's put together by many different authors with many different points of view, and that is true of the Book of Revelation as it is true of other books of the Bible. For instance, we talked in are discussions of Colossians that the liberals do not believe that Paul wrote it, even though his name is on the letter. So they have their own criteria by which they decide that, no, this could not have been written by the Apostle Paul. So this is the same here. No, this could not have been written by the Apostle John. Let alone the Holy Spirit. Just... Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't come into their understanding of the, of the, of the Scriptures at all. The Holy... That's why we believe it's not a hot. Because the Holy Spirit puts it together. Right, and the, and the integrity of the author himself, 
not just the Holy Spirit, but the author's integrity. Paul's claiming it. John is claiming it. We have, we have confidence in the integrity of the, of Paul and John that when they claim it, they're telling the truth. doesn't do hodgepodge anyway. <laughs> he, he doesn't have a, a garage like yours. So. Nope. Okay. All right. <laughs> now I, I, I com- a world like yours, though. <laughs> I commented uh, a little bit ago when we read the text that I wanted to make some observations on this term bondservants. <clears throat> it's the Greek word doulos, which means slave or servant, Translated here, bond servant, you'll notice it's duplicated in verse 1. Who are the first bond servants? Identify them. No. No. Apostles. The apostles. No. Abel. Yes, it's you. He's showing his bondservants. He's showing his people, people of the New Testament church. People of God of every age are being shown this apocalyptic revelation. Didn't you say first bondservants? First bondservants, where the word occurs first, is plural, and that's us. That's the readers, that's the Christian readers that John is going to uh, record this for. And the second bondservant is John himself. All right, so uh, we, we are invited into the book by that first bondservant. This revelation is shown to us, so it belongs to us. It, it's our possession. How do, we get to, well, how do we get hold of it? How do we possess it? That's a challenge, but nonetheless, this is the invitation of the book. This is the, one of the purposes of the book. All right, now what about this term bondservant? Why does he use this term here? Well, he uses this term in his gospel. In John 8, 34, he uses the same word doulos in the Greek. Whosoever commits sin is the slave to sin. Now, there's the negative side of bondservant. The sinner is a slave or a bond servant to sin itself. <clears throat> that is not a popular idea in the 21st century. We may be bond servants to things, to material objects, which are evil or can be used for evil purposes, and we can get that point very well, but we don't get the point that there's an evil disposition, that the will or mind of the sinner is bound by that sinful nature, that sinful inclination. Jesus had said that whoever sins is a bondservant of sin, but he also said out of the heart come murders, adulteries, fornications, etc. He's talking about the nature which is enslaved by its fallen condition. That enslavement gives it a bent. It gives it a disposition. It gives it a nature. That nature is sinfully oriented, bent, inclined, disposed. And so when it explodes with murders, adulteries, lies, deceits, etc., when it explodes, the heart is showing the nature. 
The person is showing what's in his heart. <clears throat> Once again, this is not a popular 21st century idea, but nonetheless, it is the biblical idea. It's the biblical idea of the nature, the psychology of a fallen human being. It's our psychology. It belongs to us. Well, then why does Paul or John use this word here again? Well, these bond servants are not those who are bound by the inclination of their iniquity. These are the bond servants of Christ who have been set free from that bondage. So he's reversing the paradigm in order to draw you and me and the readers, faithful Christians, into the narrative. He's saying, yes, you were once upon a time bond servants of iniquity, serving your sinful nature, serving your sinful inclination, your sinful dispositions. You were inclined to, in that direction to hate God and his Christ. But you are no longer bond servants to sin. You are bond servants to Jesus Christ, who has saved you, Jesus be praised, and who reigns over you, Christ the anointed one be praised. Once again, you see why he attaches Jesus Christ to this revelation, those two names, because they're the reversal of the bond servants of iniquity. That's the terms, that's the power, that's the force, that's the grace that has set you free. You are bond servants of Christ, slaves to him, and inclined to not to sin, but to righteousness, inclined not to evil, but to good, inclined not to murderous thoughts, but to be murderless. All right, so this term is pregnant, it's loaded, and it picks up on what John, what Jesus through in John's gospel communicates to us about the bondage of sin, the bondage of the fallen will, the bondage of human nature in its unredeemed, unconverted, ungracious state. Concupiscence, yes, it's, in, it's in inclinations, it's desires, it's lusts. Yes, Ben. What differentiates slave from bondservant? Because the Greek is slave, right? Yes, it, it's it's hard to differentiate that at every point. But bondservants here, but in other places, especially when it relates to sin, now we're called slaves to sin. Yes, the, the term can be translated slave and has that nuance in it, but. Uh, the slavery becomes blessed slavery with respect to being bond servants of Christ. Paul called himself a bond servant of Christ several times. It's that, it's that reversal of what my nature was to be now bound to Christ in the slavery of liberty, the slavery of freedom, the slavery of grace. There's a blessed slavery indeed. Okay, now the next element in your handout is a question mark between, before the word sandwich. I'll give you a moment to scan the three verses. Can you come up with a sandwich? Can you read my mind? I'll give you a clue. Someone is being sandwiched. So who's who's the who's the icing on the Oreo here? Jesus Christ. 
Nice try, but no, no cigar, no Oreo cookie for you. It must be John. It is John. All right, now, what if he's the icing, if he's the center of the sandwich, okay, where's the chocolate layers? Now, understand, there's a question mark here. I'm writing a question, so I'm not dogmatic about this, but let's see if you can pick it out. So where are the chocolate layers? Jesus Christ? No. The different angels. Nope. Where the time is near. Good. And? Uh, soon take place. Good. Very good. <clears throat> if there's a sandwich here, it's a sandwich of the phrase shortly to take to come to play, the things that are soon or shortly to take place, and the time is near at the end of verse 3, and John in between the two. Now, <clears throat> whether or not there's a legitimate sandwich here or not, this shortly take place or soon to take place and the time is near raises the question of a biographical and redemptive historical paradigm. What do I mean by that? There are two aspects to this language. Soon or shortly to take place and time is near. Two aspects. First, this language refers to the Apostle John's own story, to his biographical history. He will shortly, he will shortly experience death. Near at hand for him is the separation of his soul from his body. It will shortly come to pass to him personally. His entrance into glory will be accompanied by the reality of the images and symbols and tapestries of the visions that he records in this book, he will behold and participate in that heavenly glory as his soul, glorified soul, awaits the return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, including his own dead body, and the final judgment separation of those in heaven from those in hell. His own biography will shortly partake of glory, even the glory which is yet to be revealed, even while he awaits the consummation in that glory state. The second aspect of this language refers to the ongoing flow of redemptive history. That is to say, the present aspect of the ongoing work of the triune God, especially the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit in gathering the elect from all nations in all the years of the present interadventual era. The people of God experiencing the grace and mercy of Christ now, even as they anticipate the prophecy of the consummate future or not yet conclusion to redemptive history in the final judgment. So this language takes into account John's own personal experience and the experience of every Christian believer in every age between the time Jesus was incarnate and the time Jesus will come consummately to judge the living and the dead. The interface, there's an interface between the Apostle John's biography and the redemptive historical story which is a mirror reflection of the now and not yet categories suited to each experience. 
John now possesses that grace and mercy of God. He will not yet possess it in its fullness to perfection. Believers now in the world, throughout the history of the church, from the time of Jesus' ascension to his second coming, believers in the world now experience the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ and anticipate that future consummation of being perfectly conformed to his image and likeness and glory. These two interface. The biography of the apostle is an overlapping interface or reflection of the biography of every believer. Every believer in the history of the church. So as you read this book of Revelation, as you study it, as you think about it, the individual now not yet experienced and the corporate people of God in the ongoing now not yet experience is what this book is about. To put it simply, this book is about you in the church and the church in you. That's what it's about. It's not about hidden mysteries. It's not about bizarre uh, apocalyptic uh, <coughs> scenarios which, which are dr- dragged out onto great canvases and even made movies of. This is very simply a book about the church's life in the unfolding history of the church until Jesus comes. Both a temporal and eternal interface, which reinforces both a temporal and eternal interface for both John the Apostle and you in the church, a temporal and eternal interface reinforces the personal in the interadventual as well as the corporate in the interadventual. In such a paradigm, the church is not lost. The church is not raptured out. Understand that if you believe in the rapture, you don't believe the church is in this book. From chapter 4 on, it's not there. That's a serious blunder. It's a serious misreading of the book. It's a serious error. You take the church out of the book of Revelation. In such a paradigm, the church is not lost. Not is it raptured, nor does she disappear in some left-behind theology from the book of Revelation. Now, one final suggestion. And keep in mind where I put those question marks, those are suggestions. I'm not putting question marks about this now not yet interadventualist approach to the book of Revelation. That I think, will continue to reinforce and demonstrate itself as we go through the book verse by verse. But one final suggestion. Notice that John's name occurs in the introduction. Verse 1 or 2, depending upon how your version breaks the text. Now, you also notice that his name appears once more in verse 4 of this first chapter. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. And finally, you'll notice that his name appears in verse 10 of this first chapter. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I, John, verse 9. 
Now, in that first occurrence of John in verses 1 and 2, notice how he's described. John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. There are three things there which describe the Apostle John. He testified to the word of God. What's that mean? Preached. 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 Preached the gospel. Preached. Mm. Meaning saw him. Okay, you're saying word of God is capital W, word of God. In the beginning was the word. I don't think so. Because it's not capitalized here, at least in the New American Standard Translation. But it's not impossible. But if it's not the word of God, son of God, second person of the Trinity, John 1, 1 to 18, if it's not that, if it's not him, who is it? Or what is it? I want to say the word testified. He testified to the word of God. Yes. That would be what it would mean to me. What, 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 yes, what does it mean? What's he testifying to? He's testifying to the presence, to the church. The gospel. To the gospel, very good. To the words of the gospel. The words he heard come from Christ. It's also possible that he's talking about the Old Testament. Testifying to the Old Testament work, to the prophets and the Old Testament is also the word of God. And in fairness, it can't be completely rejected that he's testifying to the word as the person, the word of God, the second person of God. But notice, this is what he was doing during his career as a, no, not an apostle. Not yet. Be an apostle, you have to have what? You have to see the risen Christ, right? To be an apostle. We're not there yet, right? So, he's testifying to the word of God in terms of the gospel that Jesus preached. So, this is with respect to his career as a... Follower? Disciple. Yes, this is testifying to his career... Possibly testifying his career as a disciple. <clears throat> Notice what he does. To the testimony of Jesus Christ. Recording the words of Christ. Correct? Once again, the gospel of Christ. Even all that he saw. Saw when? During Jesus' lifetime. Correct. While he was a disciple of Christ going with him to Cana of Galilee, seeing Jesus at the temple in Jerusalem, going to the cross and standing at the foot of the cross. So here is John's biography being reflected upon in terms of the content of his gospel while he was a disciple. But what about verse 4? Where are these seven churches? Asia Minor. Asia Minor. Modern day what? Uh, Turkey. Modern day Turkey. Okay. Why are they mentioned? John is writing to them. Why? We're going to read about them in chapters 2 and 3, all seven of them. They're listed in verse 11. But we're not there yet in verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 4. 
Why? Because God chose him. This is his career as as an apostle. First verse, first occurrence of his name reflecting on his career as a disciple. Second mention of his name reflecting on his career as an apostle in which why the seven churches of Asia Minor? Very good. Yes, this is part of John's missionary work. He himself knew those churches, visited them, probably preached in them, may have established some of them. How do you know that? Tradition. <laughs> but also the fact that he has, in the second and third chapter, he has intimate knowledge of what's going on in these congregations, and it's not just knowledge which is communicated supernaturally. It's knowledge which is communicated through his historical circumstances and cultural background. So he's familiar with these places. And he's exiled to the island of Patmos, which is off the west coast of Asia Minor, so that's probably out of his last itinerary, out of his last area of work. And that, of course, is confirmed by the traditions of the early, or by the second century uh, A.D. church fathers. Where's Patmos at? Patmos is just off the west coast. It's an island off the west coast of Turkey, of Asia Minor. Go ahead, Ben. The seven churches, would that not have been part of the revelation of what he was to do, to send it to those churches? Uh, well, yes. I mean, he, he's writing to churches that he knows and giving this revelation to these churches that he knows. You're saying that it was not specified that he was supposed to send it to those churches? Uh, I think the two here is a indication that it's to be addressed to them and even communicated. So when it was written, finally composed and written, I think it was circulated amongst those churches. In, did God choose the seven or did John choose the seven? Is that what you're asking? Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. But didn't God identify those churches as to send the revelation to them? Yes. And John, John was merely the instrument of doing Yeah, he's the, he's the instrument, but here... Here we're, we're talking about his life in terms of its own development. His, his life in verse 2 is with respect to his time as a disciple of Christ following Jesus around. His life in verse 4 is his life with respect to his circuit of these seven churches in which he ministered and, and taught and preached the gospel. So we're, we're moving through. I'm, I'm suggesting that we're moving through the occurrence of the name of John in terms of the development of his own life and ministry. Does not occur in Acts anywhere, does it? He's not listed in Acts anywhere as, a, as one who was on a missionary trip. No, that is true, except for Samaria. Uh, that, 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 <clears throat> this would tell you that that's where this occurred. In other words, this would tell you that he had a life of ministering to these seven churches. All right, and the final occurrence of his name in verse 9 and in verse 10. There in verse 9, he's, he is on the island of Patmos as he receives this revelation, and he receives it by the work of the Holy Spirit. He's in the Spirit 
on the Lord's day. What day is the Lord's day? First day of the week. It's the first day of the week. It's Sunday. It's the day of resurrection, which is the Lord's day. And he is in the Spirit receiving this revelation by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this revelation is going to describe his present career as an exile, verse 9, on the Isle of Patmos, and a partaker, partaker verse um, verse 9 again, a partaker in the tribulation of the kingdom of God. We have then a biographical paradigm which moves from the past career of John as a disciple to a past career of John as an apostle itinerating through Asia Minor to the final act in the career of John, namely his exile to the Isle of Patmos and his participating in the tribulation of the kingdom. He is in that present participation and tribulation anticipating the tribulations which are described by repeated images and visions in this book. He is participating in that even as he draws near to his own death, even as he is suffering for the sake of the gospel of Christ on the island of Patmos. So we move from his disciple career to his apostolic career to his career as a sufferer a, a one who is enduring tribulation and persecution for the sake of the kingdom of God, sake of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is, again, what this book is about. The present and future, ongoing now and not yet, story of individuals in the church and of the church itself between the first and second coming of our Lord Jesus. We are not surprised then if we are called to suffer for Christ's sake. We are not surprised if we endure tribulation and persecution at the hands of the world. They hated me, they will hate you also. That is the life of the church in the ongoing story of history until he comes to stop it all, to complete it all, and to judge it all. This, this book is an unrolling, unfolding, dramatic presentation of that ongoing story. And John is conformed unto it in his own story as we are conformed unto it in John's story and the church's story. Ben. Uh, John, then, you, you identify John as a disciple and then an apostle. Is he now an apostle because of the, the vision that he saw in Patmos? That made him an apostle? Or no. When he, did he become an apostle? He became an apostle when he saw the risen Christ and when he was anointed with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Yeah. So he has a subsequent... His, his ministry changes as a result of seeing the risen Christ and he goes into a greater expression 
particularly as he goes to the Samaritans, which is one of the reasons John 4 is there, the woman at the well of Samaria is in his gospel nowhere else. <clears throat> so he's expressing that missionary task or commission that he had. And this book, Book of Revelation, is saying he had a greater missionary task even after that. And maybe some in between that we don't know anything about because they're not recorded, <clears throat> which expands his, uh, his exposure and his gifts to the church in Asia Minor and then creates persecution, which puts him in exile on the island of, of Patmos, suffering there. Yes, Marge? Still not clear. Uh, this thought that John had a mission to these seven churches, is that your thought? Is that speculation? Or oh, no, is that that's, that's right here. No, that's generally accepted by even liberal scholars that uh, he was... He was mi- he was a missionary to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Okay. Where would um, one find that out? Right here. This, is, this book is the testimony to the fact that he itinerated in that area. And the, tra- and the, tradition, the tradition of the early fathers backs it up. Second century A.D. church fathers. Question. So that's saying then that the reason the angel told him to write to these seven churches is because the angel of God knew that he knew these seven That's correct. He was familiar with them. He had been in their cities, in their congregations, etc. I, I think that's a reasonable deduction from the fact that it's here. The fact that it's here is telling you something about how it came to be, how he came to have that connection, as Art, as Art articulated it very well. Yes, back to you. Uh, Randy, you were first there. I'm sorry. You're saying the information comes to these churches comes from the mind of John? Is that what you're implying? No, it's, it's, it's revelation from God through the mind or through the pen of John. Yeah, because it's East, 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 by the words of the first and the last and the angel and the Right, he's sending it on. Yeah, he's sending it on. We're only trying to establish the fact that he's sending it on because he knows. He's familiar with these congregations. Ben? I guess what I never considered is that John then must have been an evangelist or an itinerant apart from Paul and all the others. Yes, that is correct. Because they lived at the same time. Well, John outlives him by at least 30 years or more. Yeah, see, Paul is dead between 64 and 68, and John isn't dead until after probably 92 or 93 A.D., about 30 years later, and that's a, that's a lot of work that can occur in 30 years. The words aloud, you didn't read the word aloud when you read the scripture. The word this what? Is he who reads the prophecy aloud, reads it aloud, you didn't read the word aloud. It's not, it's not in my uh, translation. So it's not but, but, but you would, in order to hear it, it would have to be read aloud, of course. And, of course, that's the way most in the congregations would have heard it, because they wouldn't, not all of them would have been literate, so they would have heard it read from a scroll or a, co- or, or, or a codex. Go ahead. So reading it aloud today is no longer significant? No, no. when it's read aloud and you hear it, but you actually have the advantage of being able to read it as well. Yes, it's the way Paul's epistles were taken to their congregations, read to them. 
They're recorded so that we can read them, but they heard them read out loud. Some of them could read them, but not all of them. All right. No meeting next week, remember? Have a, have a good break, as I hope my, myself to have a good break. Let's close in prayer. Father, we bless you for revealing both in the work of your Son and bringing the kingdom of heaven near now and present, present and also near in the future in that uh, ongoing unfolding of the near presence and the future presence of the kingdom of heaven, you draw sinners unto yourself. And you have done so for 2,000 years and will do so until your son comes in glory. We bless you for the encouragement that this revelation gives to us, blessing us in that understanding and in that realization that we are part of this ongoing narrative because we are part of Christ Jesus and the kingdom that he has brought now and not yet. Do bless these truths to us. Help us in these difficult parts to, uh, to, to sail smoothly through and to understand what the Spirit speaks unto the churches. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.